the two most popular books on Christian nationalism. And by popular, I mean just immediate sales on Amazon right now are, are sadly not my own books. They are, they are books <laughs> advocating for Christian nationalism by name. I'm Mitch. And I'm Missy. We're co-workers. He's the boss and we're married. And she's the boss. Together, we host Good Faith Weekly, a podcast on faith and culture. What could possibly go wrong? Tune in and find out. Missy. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Missy and I are going to catch up, talk about the upcoming midterm election, and then later on the pod. Missy and I sat down with University of Oklahoma sociology professor, Dr. Samuel Perry. He has a new book out, The Flag and the Cross, White Christian Nationalism and the Threat to American Democracy. It's going to be a great pod, so stay tuned. Hello there, Missy. How are you? Good. Cheers, me. Cheers. Let's cheers for the microphone. Ah, there we go. That wasn't right. <laughs> that was a dunk. Oh, okay. Clearly, I never did handbells in church. <laughs> Congratulations. We made it out of TikTok jail. We did. We are out of TikTok jail. If you've been following along with our TikTok saga, uh, Good Faith Media has been in TikTok jail for, I, I, I don't know, for a long time now. Um, we actually didn't... Get, we don't really know why we were in TikTok jail. We didn't get let out. We just kind of escaped and created a new profile. Shh, don't tell anyone. Okay. Well, anyways. <laughs> but so we're, we're out. TikTok jail, so we are uh, filming a little bit of video tonight. Mm-hmm. Maybe some of it will make it, um, and maybe our young, hip social media director will <laughs> say, yeah, no. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah put but the 40 and 50-year-old folks on. <laughs> anyways. Uh, hey. Yes. So, in other news, it's November. It is November. So, have you started? The No Shave November? No. <laughs> What's that? Christmas music. I, you know, I got in the dang car today <laughs> to go get the mail from the post office, and I get hit with Christmas music. This is an incredible debate that happens not only in the Randall House, but in households all over the United States. I mean, forget Republican and Democrat, forget red and blue. This is the real debate going on in 2022. Is it okay to listen to Christmas music before we cut into the turkey and celebrate Thanksgiving? Well, given the state of the world the last few years... (laughs) I think we need a little bit of hope where we can get it. I think we'd be remiss not to mention um, the the attack on Paul. Yeah, Pelosi. Yeah, uh, last week. And I, this, I don't know what to say. Well, about it. you know, but see, this is exactly what we have been talking about for several years here at Good Faith Media. That rhetoric from elected officials and those in power is meaningful and purposeful, and it can go sideways in an instant. We saw that on January the 6th, and the rhetoric has not ceased, and the vilification of political opponents as enemies of America has infused this ideology and mentality in certain individuals across this country. And I am afraid that there's going to be more violence and more attacks on political candidates, and I don't care if it's a Republican or a Democrat, 
this is absurd and it is evil and must be stamped out. It has no place in a sensible democracy. So come on, elected officials. Come on, politicians who are running for office. Stop it with the vile rhetoric that you espouse and let's find some common sense. And even after the attack, there were politicians and candidates who were poking fun at this attack. And it just breaks my heart and infuriates me at the same time. I just can't imagine what it's like to be in uh, public life right now. Um, To be in public life and know that your family is vulnerable or to be vulnerable yourself, I, I don't know. Our prayers are with uh, Paul Pelosi. It sounds like he's going to make a full recovery, and we celebrate that. And again, please, folks, condemn any violence towards our elected officials. This we're, we're so much better in this, but at times I'm afraid that we're not. So let's stand up against it, and let's continue to fight for that more perfect union, as Jefferson stated a long time ago. Absolutely. And speaking of that, you and I got to sit down this week with a fellow Normanite, Dr. Sam Perry from the University of Oklahoma. He's a sociologist, and he has a brand new book out, The Flag and the Cross, White Christian Nationalism and the Threat to American Democracy. We've been talking a lot about Christian nationalism recently. We talked to theologians, uh, political pundits, and we thought, you know what, let's get a sociologist uh, engage in this conversation. So uh, uh, it's a great interview. I hope you enjoy it. So stay tuned. Hey, listeners, check us out online at goodfaithmedia.org and follow us on social at gfmedia.org. We'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. I'm new here and could really use the feedback, but only if it's glowing. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a guest just across the highway here in Norman, Oklahoma, at the University of Oklahoma. Dr. Samuel Perry is among the nation's leading experts on conservative Christianity and American politics, race, sexuality, and families. Along with numerous articles published in leading academic journals, Dr. Perry has also authored or co-authored four books, including Growing God's Family, Addicted to Lust, Taking America Back for God, and his newest book, The Flag and the Cross. Dr. Perry, welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Always a pleasure. We're glad that you joined us today. Uh, Over the last couple of weeks, Dr. Perry, we have had numerous guests on the podcast talking about Christian nationalism. We've had theologians talking about it. We've had political pundits talking about it. And so when we you know, picked up your book, The, uh, the Flag and the Cross, we thought, okay, now we need to hear from a sociologist because the content within the book was just outstanding. So let's begin there. With the midterms less than a week away, we want to talk to you today about the influence Christian nationalism is having upon this election. So as a sociologist, can you define Christian nationalism from your perspective? Sure. And I actually think um, our definitions are not not evolving, but expanding to in, in some important ways to try to capture some of the nuance that we're actually seeing unfold as, as people respond to this concept of Christian nationalism in real time. And I'll, I'll tell you what I, what I mean by that. So in one sense, let's talk about Christian nationalism maybe as three things. 
Um, and one of them is very old and the other two are relatively new. Um, Christian nationalism, especially white Christian nationalism, we could define as a political ideology or a political theology. Uh, that is uh, that that is both part of a, a deep story about America's past and a vision for its future. Uh, it's an ideology that idealizes and advocates a fusion of American civic life with a very particular kind of Christianity. And when I say Christianity, of course, I don't mean uh, somebody who has given their life over to Jesus. I mean more of Christianity as culture or uh, Christianity as ethnoculture. Uh, the way uh, America as we know it, our way of life, uh, you know, what my country and, and, and all of that in, that implies. Um, so that is very old. Uh, that is actually older than the country itself. As we talk about in the, in the book, uh, this idea that uh, race and religion and national identity would, would uh, be intermingled with one another, uh, you know, goes back to uh, British you know, colonialists uh, 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 interacting with the Native Americans and uh, as Christians, as uh, uh, British uh, citizens and as white people. Uh, and so white Christian nationalism, the idea that America is rightfully for people like us is something that is very old, is something that we try to measure in our various uh, books. Uh, the two most recent developments, one is, is uh, Christian nationalism could also increasingly be understood as an identity people are claiming. Uh, it is no longer, uh, it used to be, you know, this ideology or this political theology we would call Christian nationalism. People would either dismiss it or they would minimalize it and say, hey, that's not really a thing or say that's a that's kind of slur. And we're now getting to the point where actually people are embracing that identity right, yeah. and arguing for it by name. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is the most famous example, but you have others. I mean, and in fact, the, the two most popular books on Christian nationalism, and by popular I mean just immediate sales on Amazon right now, are, are sadly not my own books. They are they are books <laughs> advocating for uh, they are advocating for Christian nationalism by name. Yeah. So it is it is an identity, not just an ideology, but it is an identity where people are saying I am a Christian nationalist, uh, and there's maybe disagreement about what that implies, uh, but they're at least owning the identity. And lastly, Christian nationalism could also increasingly be understood as a political strategy that aims to activate and mobilize uh, people on the basis of that ideology and that identity. And that is also something rather new. Uh, historically, you, you have, you know, Reagan, Obama, even George W. Bush, who leaned heavily on like evangelical rhetoric. Uh, whenever they mentioned religion and politics, especially from, uh, from, and from national platforms, um, they never talked about it in terms of like culture warring, uh, like, uh, you know, Christians versus seculars or Christians versus everybody else or the, the persecution of Christians and, and how we need to take back our country for its Christian heritage and that kind of thing. That is actually really relatively novel right. to Sarah Palin right. and later Donald Trump and subsequently all of the copycat Trumps like the Marjorie Taylor Greene and the Lauren Boeberts and the Doug Mastrianos and, and you know, increasingly Josh sure. Hawley and uh, Ronnie Sanders right. and others. Um, so I think that's, that's, uh, to, to sum up, I mean, I think you're, you're looking at Christian nationalism as both a political ideology that drives people, also an identity that is probably even more active in terms of mobilizing uh, Americans, but it is also uh, a political strategy that far-right politicians can use to try to mobilize those audiences. So, Dr. Perry, in a recent Pew Research poll, four out of 10 Americans said they believe that the U.S. should be a Christian nation. And this is obviously, as you've alluded to, coming up more and more on the campaign trail. 
Can you kind of go back and unpack a little bit? I have my own theory, but I'm guessing our <laughs> listeners might appreciate your more academic and maybe appropriate theory <laughs> of what is the root cause of this movement of Christian nationalism? Where did it come from? How did we get here? After Dr. Perry's astute answer, we I'll, really want to hear yours. I'll refrain. <laughs> I want to keep my job. <laughs> so evidence suggests that Christian nationalism uh, responds to perceptions of threat. Uh, there was actually a, a really interesting recent study by uh, two social psychologists and their team, uh, Rosemary Alkire and Mikey Pasek. And what they did is they did this experiment where they they exposed uh, Christians uh, to different kinds of conditions. And one of those conditions was to tell them that their numbers were declining, that they were going to be a minority, religious minority by 2050. And they found that when you told Christians about their impending minority status, they responded with greater Christian nationalism and Trump support. Uh, and that makes perfect sense because Christian nationalist ideology and Trump support are, are likely uh, a response to perceptions of threat, uh, that, that our numbers, our political and cultural influence is declining, are declining, and uh, that, that our power is going to be taken away and we need to circle the wagons uh, to uh, make sure that we don't lose that cultural and political power and, and, and we define who, who is really American, who is truly American, who is America for uh, and so uh, I think why are we seeing this uh, this this kind of rhetoric and this kind of ideology emerge now in the political uh, cycle is because that kind of rhetoric can activate anxiety uh, and fear uh, among Christian populations to make them mobilized to say, oh, wow, I really need to vote because America as we know it is, is being taken away. And if we lose power, uh, then that's it. We're never going to get it back. Uh, and so uh, I, I think this is this this is a strategic time for leaders on the far right to be able to leverage that kind of cultural and political anxiety. Now, there's also another story, a part of the story, and I think um, increasing secularization is part of this story. Um, and what I mean by that is is secularization can mean a variety of different things. People are going to church less, or that um, maybe more and more Americans are identifying as unaffiliated rather than with their uh, traditional. Um, you know, something that they would have identified with 30 years ago, like being a Christian. But increasingly, um, secularization can also mean that uh, religious identities are, are no longer our most important social identities, and they don't organize all of our other identities. So uh, what has taken place within the last few decades is that political and partisan identities, ideological identity, whether I'm conservative, whether I'm liberal, whether I'm Republican, whether I'm Democrat, these have become more important identities, and these are now organizing the religious identities where um, what I really care about is I care about my ideological and political tribe holding power. Uh, and religion in that sit situation becomes uh, leveraged and useful as a, as a way to organize and to say, this is us, that is them, here's what we believe, here's what they believe. And so religion is just one among many uh, identities that are now organized under these partisan and ideological identities, uh, and 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 that means that um, that means if if you are if you identify as a Christian, but I disagree with you politically, uh, I am I am probably going to question whether or not you are truly a Christian <laughs> in my sense of the word, right? Because yeah. what really matters is whether you identify with me politically and ideologically, not whether we are both baptized, whether we affirm the same uh, doctrinal creeds, all those kinds of things. Dr. Perry knows this as well. I mean, a lot of people of faith have forgotten their own history. Uh, you know, you and I are Baptist, and Baptists have certainly forgotten uh, 
what happened to them in the 17th century when they came over uh, to the Massachusetts right. Bay Colony and uh, were persecuted. So we've, we've forgotten those stories or we've chosen to ignore them. So uh, we hear exactly what you're saying, Dr. Perry. Thank you so much. Now, in preparation for this interview, Missy and I both read your most excellent book, The Flag and the Cross. And uh, in part of the book, uh, you describe, you and your co-author provided these seven questions that I'm going to call markers, if that's misstating it, I apologize, but kind of seven different markers for Christian nationalism or uh, some some statements that they would agree with strongly uh, in your questionnaire. One of those markers is their belief that they are doing the very will of God. Now, you mentioned earlier in the interview, is Christian nationalism a political movement, or is it a theological movement, or is it both? This is where it gets really frightening for me, Dr. Perry, because, yes, I think it's a political uh, movement, but it's so rooted in this idea of certainty, of theological certainty, and the policies that they are trying to advocate for are really terrifying if you peel that onion enough. So why is this understanding of political practice in doing the will of God so dangerous when it comes to Christian nationalism? I, I think once you once you uh, are able to eliminate dissenting voices, and this is the climate that we find ourselves in, where we are polarized, and uh, if we are a if we are a, a unified group on the right or the left, uh, part of that that unification involves uh, quieting, uh, moderating voices, uh, and dissenting voices, and and so what you end up with is you end up with a bunch of people who are very very convinced that that only they uh, are right. Uh, this is a problem on both the right and the left, certainly. And so I, I and I don't mean to both sides this kind of thing. Asymmetric sure. polarization is, is in fact what we're what we're witnessing. Whereas uh, in terms of like affect what we call affective polarization, I mean it's probably fair to say the left and the right equally don't like each other or they equally dis, distrust uh, one another. But in terms of uh, who has proactively done more work to try to violate democratic norms or to play, constitutional hardball, uh, it, it, is, it has been the right as of late, especially with the, the, the very, very angry uh, rhetoric that you can see coming from, uh, I think, campaigners right now. This idea that, you know, uh, being convinced, theologically convinced that, that you alone have the truth uh, and uh, that uh, everybody else is your enemy, I, I think it, it elevates and escalates, excuse me, it escalates um, the, the potential for uh, violence uh, and for uh, really an unwillingness to compromise in any way, because really, you know, once once you are convinced that your side is on the side of God, mm-hmm. uh, to, to even suggest that we would compromise is like saying, well, maybe we should just compromise with Satan on this one, guys. Like maybe maybe <laughs> we should maybe we should maybe we should do the less biblical thing or the right. less Christ like thing. Maybe we should do the more uh, demonic thing or Luciferian. That's the that's the popular now. Maybe we should. Maybe we should engage with the Luciferian left on this issue. I, that sounds unconscionable, of course. And so the more that you believe that you alone are on the side of God and you're unwilling to acknowledge that anybody else uh, has some insight, uh, and that makes compromise impossible. Now, combine that with uh, what we're seeing now is, is uh, you know, 
Political scientist Paul Jupe has done some fascinating work on this, and, and I, I, I reference uh, his efforts all the time or his, his research. Um, he has shown, and he's bounced these uh, numbers around Twitter a little bit, he's shown that when you combine Christian nationalist ideology with belief in uh, a, a, a good versus evil kind of spiritual war, uh, this, the spiritual warfare language and Satan and demons and angels and, and how uh, we feel a part of this kind of thing, you, you see an increased acceptance of, of or a toleration toward political violence. And that makes perfect sense because with Christian nationalism, you have the belief that something has been taken away from you or is being taken away from you. And with this kind of eschatological vision, uh, you, you get the, the cosmic stakes uh, that are eternal. And uh, this idea that, that it is, if we lose, it's not just our political team losing, it is, it is God losing. Uh, it is as as Roger Stone says. It is it is plunging America into a thousand years of darkness. This is angels and demons, and and mm-hmm. um, and that creates uh, that that makes democracy impossible. That makes uh, compromise impossible. Makes cooperation you only only victory is is the option, mm. yeah. uh, or yeah. or some kind of massive sacrifice or death, going to jail, uh, and sometimes that is justified, right? So like during sure. the civil rights movement, I I hope people on the side of civil rights were were convinced of their uh, of the righteousness of their cause sure. uh, and their willingness to go to jail, and yet um, I think the consequence of misinformation uh, and a lot of uh, I think uh, really charged rhetoric on the right has led a bunch of very scared white Christians to feel like they are on the they are the good guys in this new civil rights battle, uh, and uh, and they're willing to do anything. Thank you. Dr. Perry, another um, strategy we've talked about the last, as Mitch inter- uh, mentioned, several of our other interviewees, we've, we've asked everyone, and I think in part because Mitch and I are looking for the answer as well. Um, but you talk about in the book how Christian nationalism will, or Christian nationalists will take familiar terms and re- redefine them or code them for their purposes. And then, of course, creating dog whistles and all of that you talk about. But like things such as religious liberty or church state, church state separation and just the taking and the co-opting of these terms and in we're constantly asking how do we combat this this um practice what do we do how can we i don't know fix it jesus <laughs> <laughs> did you just call sam jesus <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know um I think that is the that I mean that is one of the challenges that we're facing now is the the um, and something we we have actually imported into our nation uh, from other nations is the strategic use of misinformation uh, and disinformation to 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 not just lie about the people we don't like uh, but to to create a kind of a, a nihilism uh, of why bother uh, why even why even engage with all of this uh, this stuff it's just lies anyway. Uh, to make you really kind of hopeless about getting truth uh, and uh, ultimately just appealing back to power. Uh, and so like with the, with the flexibility of these words, uh, like religious liberty, which is uh, just a, a great example of that. Uh, religious liberty, of course, doesn't, doesn't mean religious liberty for others. Uh, it means religious liberty for us. It's, it's religious liberty in the Massachusetts Bay Colony sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, it is, uh, it is our religious liberty to do a, to, to arrange a society as we see fit. Or I think, you know, uh, in the book, we argue that uh, the, the word Christian in, in political circles is, is also leveraged as a dog whistle. And that makes more sense when, when one political party is more aligned and more comprised of, of white Christians. Mm-hmm. 
saying to that group of people, hey, Christians are under attack is, is basically the same thing as saying our people, conservatives are under attack, Republicans are under attack. And so the language becomes uh, changed, even the, the language of Christian nationalism now. So like the, the, when people are identifying as Christian nationalists, they very rarely think that, you know, we, we are trying to take the country back to oppress those people who are, who are wrong. They, they try to redefine that as Christian patriotism, which we, we, we don't believe is the same thing. Uh, or they try to redefine that as, you know, we just want to vote our values. We're just conservative Christians who are trying to vote our values. So we're Christian nationalists, which is also not what we believe. Um, but to define that, but to redefine those terms, it, it makes Christian nationalism seem uh, in either, either innocuous and benign, or it makes it seem like, oh, the left are the ones, they're the ones who have the problem with Christians voting their values and they're the ones patriots, which is, again, not what we argue. So um, how do we combat that? Uh, I think it is, I mean, gosh, I wish I had better answers, but I think it, 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 it requires us, it requires us uh, as these concepts become more popular, for example, Christian nationalism, as people are talking about it more and more, I think it, it is our responsibility as people who think that the phrase means something, and we, we'd like to think that, that it's, it's describing something negative, to be very careful about how we define that so that it is not basically the, the left's version of the word woke. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the word woke or wokeness or all of these kinds of derivatives, uh, I think, has, has basically just been used over the last year as a slur against anything liberal. So anything liberal is woke, woke gender ideology, woke racial, you know, identity politics, all these kinds of things. I have no desire to make Christian nationalism the left's version of woke. I right. think it, it's, it, it, should, it should mean something specific. And we have to be careful about that so that people can't say, oh, Christian nationalism has no definition. We'll just make it what we, we mm-hmm. want it to be. We all saw what happened with our own eyes on January the 6th uh, when a group of citizens stormed the United States Capitol. And in those images, we saw a lot of Christian nationalist symbols, a lot of Christian nationalist language, um, you know, that, that was part of the insurrection on January 6th. Sam, we've got a midterm election next week. We've got another presidential election two years after that. What do you think is going to happen in the future? I know we're not asking you to look into a crystal ball, but what would happen if Christian nationalism or Christian nationalists prevail? And even if they don't, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah, um, I think it it could go a a couple of different ways. Um, I think optimistically, uh, we do see a, a pretty, I mean, I think within a short amount of time, we see Americans backing away from the concept. Um, I think we, we've, we've tried to ask similar questions over years and years of, of submitting national surveys, and I think there's enough evidence to suggest now that fewer Americans subscribe to just hardcore Christian nationalist views. Most Americans like separation of church and state. Most Americans think that's a good thing. Um, uh, most Americans do not want uh, theocracy um, or, or anything resembling what we describe as Christian nationalism. And I, and I think there's evidence to suggest that fewer Americans do or, or, or within the last, say, seven years. Um, that is a positive and a negative. So on the positive side, I, mean, I think there's, there's a, a, a shrinking minority of people who actually espouse those views. The, the bad side of that is that... Uh, the more that that happens, the more that group really recognizes they are a true, like, persecuted minority. No, I don't mean persecuted unfairly. I just mean, like, they're a minority. Sure. And they become more militant, more radicalized, and more 
magic and and that's how you win in politics i mean is it it is it is not the majority of americans who are deciding things politically most most americans are moderates uh, they're right in the middle that bell curve and uh as uh, you know a, a political an axiom in political science is that the middle does not move uh, or the moderates do not move they are they are not donating to campaigns they're not getting out there and voting in huge numbers they're not really active they're certainly not active on social media doing all the work and so what you really need to win is you need a very very motivated and organized and militant group of people who are who are sure about their their cause um, so the small numbers belies the strength of the of the movement, especially when you have very very strategic and powerful people in place. Uh, so if Christian nationalist leaders, people who are running on this kind of rhetoric, so it doesn't look like Doug Mastriano is going to win uh, in Pennsylvania, but it does look like Carrie Lake's going to, and it, it looks like uh, other other uh, Senate seats by like Lauren Boebert or or Marjorie Taylor Greene or other people like that are are pretty safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so the more that that the more that that kind of rhetoric and the more these kinds of leaders find success uh, electorally, the more they have the freedom to reshape uh, the American uh, electorate through gerrymandering, uh, through judicial appointments. Uh, in 2024 is going to be a huge year. I mean, it you know De, you know Ron DeSantis and 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 Donald Trump are cut from the same cloth. And they're both going to use that kind of rhetoric to shore up their base. And the more that they make promises to that base, the more they're going to come through for them. And uh, and I, I think you you have some real uh, problems with the possibility of religious liberty again that 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 slippery term yeah. being used to cover um, just about any form of discrimination against religious outgroups or sexual minorities. Mm-hmm. Um, with the with the uh, Supreme Court the way it is. Um, I mean, that's just an example of, 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 of an already secure victory for the right for a generation uh, that they will con- continue uh, to deliver uh, favorable decisions uh, for the Christian right. Um, and so, you know, I, I think there is going to be rough sledding ahead. Uh, it looks like right now, I'm looking at the numbers today, it looks like the Republicans are going to take the House and possibly the Senate, likely the Senate. I mean, not by a huge majority, mm-hmm. but they, they probably mm-hmm. are going to take it. Uh, and so what does that mean uh, going forward? Uh, I think, you know, it, it, it means that uh, if, if anybody is opposed to this kind of ideology, this kind of political strategy and this identity, I think that means there's going to have to be some pretty, uh, pretty uh, motivated uh, work on behalf of people who, who want to fight for democracy. Well said. Well, I, I hope uh, that you're right. I hope that there's going to be a mobilization of sensible people and that people get out to vote next week. Uh, we have been encouraging all of our listeners to get out and vote next week. No matter how you vote, make sure that you get out and exercise your right because it is very, very important. Well, Dr. Samuel Perry, he is the author of The Flag and the Cross, and you heard it earlier Um He's getting beat by two books that are supportive of Christian nationalism. So go to uh, go to uh, Amazon right now and buy his book. Let's get his numbers up so that he can overtake those <laughs> other two. Uh, but we really appreciate you being a guest, and you're always welcome back here at Good Faith Weekly, Dr. Perry. But before we let you go, this has got one last question for you. Dr. Perry, as you know, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. In light of your work and our conversation today, what is your more to tell? And if you can remember your response from last time, I'll give you a pass and let you use it again. 
<laughs> uh, I cannot remember my response from last time, so I will use a I will use a response this time. I think, um, you know, I I think if if we can find a, a common cause with people on the right who are I think attract or persuadable to Christian nationalist rhetoric, um, it is a question that I think all of us have to answer as as citizens, and that is what unites us as a nation if it's not religion or if it's not some kind of common ethnicity or some kind of common heritage or even a myth of a common heritage or ancestry. Um, and I, I think that has to be our, our commitment to creedal values that Americans have, have long revered and held to, uh, the things that we find in the Declaration of Independence, that uh, uh, legal equality, uh, that uh, full uh, civic participation in democracy, of, of equal rights under the law, of representat- representative government, uh, that is a small kind of government, and I don't mean small in the in the tax sense. I just mean a government that doesn't interfere with our lives. We like that. Um, those are all things worth defending. Those are things that we feel like make America uh, really great. Um, and so I, I hope that we can develop common cause with with uh, people on the left and the right to say democracy is important, protecting the rights of individual citizens is important, and that means everybody's rights to practice religion how they want to. Uh, and that we 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 make society a, a great place to be, and that doesn't depend on us taking America back for uh, some kind of mythical uh, Christian subculture. Well said, Dr. Perry. Thank you so much. Uh, we wish you the very best, and we hope that next week goes without any kind of conflict or violence, and America yeah. is yes. at its best next Tuesday as they go to the polls. Missy, what are your thoughts? Um. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, folks. Let me get Missy out of her fetal position and back to her chair in front of the mic. Right. Um, <laughs> nothing against Dr. Perry. He's clearly a brilliant um, thinker and scholar. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. Uh, you know, but, I mean, not the most uplifting, um, I don't know, topic, I guess. So (laughs) we have an election uh, just a few days away, which is uh, one of the reasons we decided to kind of camp out in this space a little bit um, about Christian nationalism and and how it is impacting our uh, government and our elections. Uh, We feel like it's important to keep um, educating and getting the word out. It's just our way of doing some things. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because there's been a lot of debate around Christian nationalism. Is it a political movement, as uh, Dr. Perry discussed in the interview? Is it a political movement, or is it a theological movement, or a combination of both? And as someone trained for ministry who has a Master's of Divinity with Biblical Languages and a Doctor of Ministry degree in Religious Liberty— I am deeply concerned because I think, yes, it is a political movement based upon the acquisition of power and the sustainability of power, but at the same time, it is infused with theological convictions that have evolved into theological praxis in an attempt to take control of the federal government and subjugate all other citizens who disbelieve in that who disbelieve in that type or strand of Christian thought. So 
I am very worried about it. And, you know, as we see these election deniers uh, continue to gain power in the Republican Party who deny the fact that uh, Donald Trump lost the 2020 election to Joe Biden um, just reminds us that they are not above recreating history in order to support their current ideology and grab for power. We heard recently from Governor Rick DeSantis of Florida that Can you imagine, he said, a little white child sitting in class and hearing that his ancestors stole land from the indigenous people? And then he had the audacity to say, that never happened. That's not true. Really, Governor DeSantis? I've got decades and centuries of history from my ancestors who say otherwise. It's just absolutely absurd. But if it was not so dangerous, it would be funny. But, Missy, it is extremely dangerous. And there's going to be some of those individuals walking the halls of the U.S. Capitol beginning in 2023. So as I have gotten older and and started to research and read more about how this kind of um, thinking has become more prevalent. And now it's just more out in the open. Um, Just learning about the coded language and the dog whistles and things and, and feeling pretty embarrassed about not maybe making those connections, even though some of them were when I was a child. So I don't know what I would have done different, but I want to quote the great prophet Moira Rose. <laughs> uh, you might want to tell some who of our listeners me? who may not be Schitt's Creek viewers. Who, who doesn't know Moira Rose, you guys? <laughs> In fact, I may just start bringing a Moira Rose quote every week. I feel like that the would theology, be Oh, that would have been the a great sermon series. Yeah. So she says, sometimes the eye won't allow the brain to see things at first. Mm. And I feel like as a country that rings true in a sense that there were so many little things that happened along the way that just, you know, that I wouldn't allow our brain to see. And so I thought maybe you could take a couple of minutes and we'll just take, pull a couple of examples from um, the book that we read of Dr. Perry's. And also I think you're referencing this in your article that that, uh, came out this week about two ways in which this language kind of crept into our, our, just our thinking in sure. our country. One is the dollar bill mm-hmm. and God we trust. And the other is the pledge of allegiance. When we say one nation under God, which I never knew those were not always there. <laughs> and I'm guessing many of our listeners probably did. And they're yeah. saying, you know, duh right now. And they're going to, you know, shut this off because they've heard the story. Yeah. However, I feel like for maybe some people who, who don't know this Maybe you could take three minutes. Okay, set the timer. Us. Okay, ready, go. Yeah. Well, first of all, In God We Trust was, uh, it replaced our original uh, national motto that was E Pluribus Unum, which meant, it was Latin for out of many, one. And that was the national motto because our founders truly wanted to create a secular government that kept church and state separate. 
they understood. They were not anti-religious, but they understood that government needed to remain neutral when it came to governing, governing all citizens. And therefore, they put the First Amendment into the U.S. Constitution, which includes the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. People have the right to practice their faith as their conscience dictates. But at the same time, Congress and the federal government should not advance the cause of religion. So, the original motto, out of many, one, was a beautiful expression of this melting pot of the United States in a hope to become one union. You know, you mentioned the melting pot, and I just remember in elementary school and, and on, even on up, being taught in social studies, you know, America was founded as a melting pot, and that's what we were supposed to be, and we learned the story of the Statue of Liberty, and, you know, bring me your, what is it, your, your weary, I'm sorry, I don't remember Metal the masses, quote. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and that's kind of the idea that that you built up in your mind, but, I mean, of course, we were also taught that Thanksgiving was a happy feast between the natives <laughs> and the pilgrims. Wait, so, wait, it wasn't? So lots of things problematic. However, it's almost just following history that everybody was fine with that melting pot until our, um, maybe we could say our fragile white male egos got word that they maybe weren't going to be the majority um, forever. And then, you know, they just look for ways to keep power and whatever that is. And it just, you know, happens to be Christian nationalism obviously is effective and works, but you know, once they start to lose power, it's like, eh, do we really want to be that melting pot? Yeah. Or well, not? I mean, let's be honest. I mean, the founders who came up with this, it was a philosophical ideological uh, move of genius to include this as our motto, but let's also be very clear. They did not practice it. Many no. of them, Jefferson, Madison, especially, well, it was written for white male landowners. Right, so they had the power. They were accidentally genius. <laughs> Can you say that? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. Uh, maybe. <laughs> uh, but at any rate, that struggle continued throughout the country. In fact, we had a civil war about it. Uh, and in fact, if you do a deep dive of history in the phrase, in God we trust, that is actually when that phrase began to emerge as a cry for unity. Now, what's interesting about it, it doesn't come from the South. It comes from the North and the Union soldiers saying, in God we trust, thinking that Providence was on their side and God was on their side to uh, win this civil war. Well, anyway, fast forward to 1956. President Eisenhower passes this idea, and uh, I can't remember if it's executive order or a piece of legislation, but a new motto replaced the original, and that new motto was, in God we trust. Now, there's a couple of schools of thought why that was. Uh, again, this is 56, the rise of the Soviet Union. The Cold War is rising in tension, and there were preachers like Billy Graham preaching the godless communist and the godless Soviet Union. And therefore, as a communication strategy, it set the United States as God's chosen people mm -hmm. versus the godless communist. Mm -hmm. There's also another undertone to this 
that uh, the out of many one was problematic for a lot of folks in the South because this idea of oneness to the segregated South was never Ooh. acceptable. No, I can see that. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it was really just a, a combination of many ideals and many situations where the Eisenhower administration put in God we trust on our currency and then inserted the phrase uh, under God in the Pledge of Allegiance. It's, it's so crazy to me to think about that because when I first learned that little tidbit, I don't know, it was several years ago, but I remember trying to say in my head the Pledge of Allegiance without it and it just, it didn't, I mean, it's just so ingrained. We don't even, we don't even think about it. Now to someone who is not of our faith or not of a faith. I can see where that would be. I've, I've told the story many times uh, from the pulpit that I can remember growing up in uh, the east side of Tulsa, Oklahoma, going to Walter Reed Elementary School, walking into class, walking into homeroom, and every day we stood up for the Pledge of Allegiance and we would put our hands over our heart and recite the pledge. And to my left, there was a little girl who was a Jehovah Witness. And because of her faith, she chose not to stand and recite the pledge, nor offer an invocation for school starting. And I can remember little kids making fun of her or poking fun at her because of her religious stance. And it was just so disheartening. And even as a child, I knew that was wrong. I've heard that story. I still know her name. I know we won't say it out loud <laughs> on the air, but you've told it so many times. I will I will never forget her, and I can see her. But you know how that, I think we forget what it's like to be that one, and there are mm-hmm. places in the world where you go, and you might be that one person who's who's not included. And that's not what we're about. That's not what we're supposed to be about. We can do better. Absolutely. Absolutely. Any others that came up? Uh, any other thoughts came up in our conversation with Dr. Perry? Oh, yes. I don't know if you caught this, but he did say at one point, and I don't think he realized the genius um, that he spouted, but I'm going to take this and claim it because he he mentioned in passing, he said, we can do something, something, you know. And, and <laughs> Is that an exact quote? Yes, that's an exact <laughs> quote. <laughs> and we can make America really great. Mm. And I thought, Oh my goodness, that's it. That's my new slogan is make America really great. Do you know why? Why? What's the acronym? Oh my gosh, no. <laughs> Marg. <laughs> Y'all, we are oh going to make America gosh. Marg with a salted rim. And it's going to be beautiful. <laughs> beautiful. <laughs> it will be beautiful. We can cheers again on that note. <laughs> Well, that's great. Well, Dr. Perry was fantastic, and we are sitting here within a week of a midterm election. Lots going on in the country, uh, lots of concern about Election Day, but we just want to encourage everybody out there, please go vote. It does not matter who you're voting for. But be an informed voter. Yes, but be an informed voter. Uh, Mark Twain, I think it was Mark Twain who said... I have no idea. (laughs) You you know my quote, um, (laughs) Bank here is the likes of Moira Rose. (laughs) Absolutely. I think it was Mark Twain who said, 
if you uh, want to know why America is in such trouble, all you have to do is have a conversation with an uninformed voter. <laughs> so, uh, if he didn't say it, folks can let us know. Yeah, absolutely. Actually said it. Absolutely. But I do have this quote, and this is a good one to end on, Missy. It's from the 16th president of the United States, the great emancipator, President Abraham Lincoln. He summed it up best when he said, elections belong to the people. It's their decision. If they decide to turn their back on the fire and burn their behinds, then they will just have to sit on their blisters. Ladies and gentlemen, let's make certain we don't sit on our blisters after Tuesday. Wow. I hadn't heard that one. It's a good one. That's great. Where'd you find that? (laughs) You know, found it on the old Google. On the Google, so you know it's true, you guys. <laughs> no, it was uh, in a book I found. <laughs> so, well, right. thank you so much uh, for tuning in this week. Uh, next week, uh, we will, if our democracy is still <laughs> viable, we will be back uh, with another great guest. And uh, we hope that you have a great weekend. And we'll talk to you next week. You've been listening to Good Faith Weekly, hosted by Mitch and Missy Randall. This weekly podcast from Good Faith Media discusses matters of faith and culture. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a like and a glowing review. We produce the podcast out of Norman, Oklahoma. Our music comes from Pond 5. And we're supported by listeners like you. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org.